Welcome to another episode of Econopolitics. Hi, I'm Joseph Marks in Los Angeles, and I'll be your co-host for today's show. And I'm Fabrizio Chagas Bastos in Sao Paulo. Econopolitics is the official podcast of LASA's Economics and Politics section, where we engage section members, international practitioners, and new voices from Latin America. Today's guest is Sarah Niedzwiecki, live from South Bend, Indiana. Sarah is the winner of this year's Best Article Prize, together with Santiago Andria, with their article in Latin American Politics and Society entitled, Participatory Social Policies, Diverging Patterns in Brazil and Bolivia. So welcome, Sarah. We are delighted to have you as our very first guest of Econopolitics. Thank you, Joseph, and thank you, Fabricio. I'm really honored to be the co-recipient of this year's award. And um, just to introduce myself, I'm an assistant professor in the politics department at UC Santa Cruz. And this year, um, as Joe mentioned, I'm a visiting fellow at the Kellogg Institute um, here in Notre Dame. Um, I did my PhD at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill with Evelyn Huber. She was my advisor. Um, and close friend. And what I study and what I have been studying for the past decade is the role of politics in improving the living conditions in Latin America. And so in my research, I ask two main questions which fall within the field of comparative politics within political science. First, um, I ask what are the political processes through which social policies are formed, are designed, and are also implemented. So I'm interested in what policies look like in the laws, but also how do they look like on the ground? And second, I'm interested in the characteristics and the causes and consequences of government decentralization. And so to answer these questions, um, I have first co-authored a book that studied the authority of states and provinces in countries around the world, actually in 80 countries around the world, in which we um, study the differences in decentralization levels. Um, in my second book, which was the product of my dissertation research at UNC Chapel Hill, um, I look at the political factors that shape the implementation of social policies in decentralized countries. And my focus is on Argentina and Brazil. And I think this question of implementation or how policies look like on the ground is very important uh, because only well-implemented policies can decrease poverty, produce healthier populations. Um, and so the book basically argues that a combination of political competition, credit claiming, state capacity, and policy history explain this variation. Finally, this year at the Kellogg, I'm working on my third book project it's on immigration and the welfare state in Latin America. Uh, what I see is that a lot of attention has been paid to South-North migration, but almost half of all migration is between countries in the global South. And I hope that this book is going to be the first systematic analysis of immigrants' access to social services and transfers in Latin America. And in Latin America, we host 10 million immigrants. Um, I'm currently thinking about you know, original ways in which I can continue my field research in South America um, in a virtual way. Um, in your paper, Sarah, you look at how civil society organizations in Bolivia and Brazil participated in the expansion of social policy. For example, pensions in Bolivia and the healthcare system in Brazil, but, but that they did so in very different ways. 
What were these diverging patterns of participation regarding social policies and why are they important? So um, what we find in the paper, and I can tell you a little bit also about the, the story of how we came up with the idea, um, is that we, exactly as you said, we started looking with Santiago at uh, ways in which social movements and civil society organizations participate in social policy. And Santi and I uh, met at UNC Chapel Hill. We were both grad students and really good friends. And our discussions on the role of social movements in social policies that started a couple of years uh, before in an article that we published in SCID, in Studies in Comparative International Development. And there uh, we thought that our main contribution was to say that you know, social movements were actually crucial, especially in the context of Bolivia and the Bolivia SMAS. But then in this new article that you mentioned that was published in LAPS in Latin American Politics and Society last year, our contribution is to say not just that social movements matter, but to talk about how they matter. What are the mechanisms by which they do? Are they inside formal channels, such as, for example, participating in conferences and councils, in collecting signatures, in doing petitions to the bureaucracy, or do social movements participate in a more bottom-up fashion that is uh, through outside channels? Examples of that are, for example, um, out, outside forms of participation, such as demonstrations, strikes, roadblocks, occupation of government buildings, um, picketing, for example. And we think that understanding the forms of popular participation matters because policies that allow for popular input are potentially more universal. Uh, they are also potentially less discretionary than the ones that don't have input from civil society. And so from this theoretical puzzle, we decided to focus on what we think are the two most universal policies in Latin America. The universal pension reform in Bolivia that include Renta Dignidad and the health system in Brazil, the Sistema Unico de Saúde. And we find that in Brazil, popular participation in social policy making, especially in the SUS, but also overall in social policies, takes place mostly through inside formal channels and mechanisms for citizen participation. And these participatory structures, for example, conferences and councils, um, institutionalized participation, right? And the, because participation happens within the structure of the state. But in Bolivia, by contrast, influence in social policy making occurs predominantly via outside channels, that is by coordinating pressure and sustaining collective action in the streets. And to explain the differences in these forms of popular participation, we focus on two variables. To tell you the truth, this paper was originally thought as just contributing to the literature on how social movements participate. But I think um, correctly, the um, editors of the special issue, because the paper is part of the special issue, pushed us to think more about the independent variables and what explains these patterns, these different patterns of participation. And so what we say is that on one hand, the characteristics of the institutional context matter. And so the stronger the institutions are, the less incentives the movements have to go outside institutions to make demands. And on the other hand, on differences in the types of movements engaged in the policymaking process. That is, when the movements are professional based, like the sanitaristas versus uh, grassroots movements. And so professional based movements have incentives to make demands within institutions, 
because their main power resource is their specialized knowledge, their financial contribution, their electoral support. But for grassroots organizations, they have more incentives to use outside pressure because their core strength is in their capacity to bring together large numbers of participants to engage in street politics. And so this reminds me that what I didn't, that I, I, what I mentioned at passing is that this was part of um, a co-editing, uh, a co-edited special issue for LAPS. It was co-edited by Lindsay Micah, Jessica Rich and Al Montero. And the three of them did an amazing job with this special issue uh, in identifying uh, important uh, contributions to participatory politics in Latin America. Uh, and they gave us um, fantastic uh, feedback together with the three reviewers at LAPS. Sarah, congratulations. So let me play devil's advocate here. Why is your paper relevant? I think it's relevant, and that's a great question. Um, I think it's relevant because we know from previous scholars uh, that um, civil society organizations and social movements matter for explaining social policy, right? We have, starting with the book of my own advisors, Evelyn Heaver and John Stevens in 2012, Annie Pribble and her book in 2013, and Candelaria Garay in 2017, and even my own work, we all show that unions, civil society organizations, and social movements matter. But what we know little about is how that matters, where are the mechanisms, and what are the different patterns of mobilization and participation, right? And so to put it differently, in their books, uh, Jenny Privil and Candelaria Garay show that social policies that receive this societal input, that is input from civil society organizations, from unions, from social movements, have this potential to be more universalizing, to cover more people, um, as opposed to uh, remaining in the realm of very targeted uh, policies. Um, so the existing literature already emphasizes the benefits of popular participation for social policy. So there, we're not saying anything new. But what they are not emphasizing is the forms of participation. And here, what we are showing is that social policies can be connected by different mechanisms or paths that is the inside institutionalized path or the outside or through pressure in the streets path. And I think, um, and, and one of my, the aspects of my research is that I really get into mixed methodology and I really like methodology per se. And so I think that by unpacking how, the how of this process, the causal mechanisms, the article is not just offering a theoretical contribution to the literature, but I think also a methodological one. And here we are building from the excellent work on causal mechanisms by Marisa Brooks at the University of California, Riverside. And so building off of her work, we explore the possibility that the role of civil society organizations and the universalization of social policy are connected by different causal mechanisms. That is, while some independent and dependent variables in the literature on Latin American welfare states can be the same across countries, that is, social movements matter, their causal mechanisms that connect them may differ across the cases. And that's exactly what we find in Brazil and Bolivia. Sarah, um, Brazil and, and Bolivia continue to dominate the headlines recently. Um, so have the forms of participation or the types of movements involved changed? For example, are there less people in the streets in Bolivia protesting, clamoring for more social policies or less active formal social councils in Brazil, for example. So between the writing of the paper 
what's going on right now in those two countries have has anything significantly changed? Mm, that, that's interesting. I mean, coincidentally, um, I'm actually working on a paper um, with Jennifer Privil on forms of expansion and retrenchment of social rights. And this is all before COVID, right? Because I feel that after COVID, so many things have changed, um, especially with regard to social policy and where governments are putting the emphasis on. And so, you know, part of the literature would tell us that the patterns of mobilization would change depending on whether we are under a right-wing administration or a left-wing administration. Um, and in this paper with Jenny Privil, we actually don't look at Bolivia, but we look at Argentina, Brazil, as well as Chile and Uruguay. And we look at what has happened with social policies and social policy expansion and retrenchment uh, in these countries, um, especially uh, since the end of the commodity boom. Uh, this not in the case of Brazil, but in the case of, of Bolivia, the reform took place in a context of economic bonanza when this government had more resources um, than currently. Um, and so what we do in this paper that I think is relevant is that we argue that here, not the form of popular participation, but the form of retrenchment versus expansion matters. That is, there are easier ways and harder ways to expand and retrench social policies in Latin America. And here we are building off of the great work um, on Alicia, that Alicia Holland and Ben Schneider started on the difficulty or, or, easy, or the, the more difficult or the easier ways of expanding social policy. And so what we say is that a reform is politically harder, first, when it requires a lot of institution building, a lot of state capacity, Second, when there are strong organized forces that oppose the reform, and here social movements and civil society organizations are important. And three, when it's not politically visible and therefore politicians can't easily claim credit for it. And so overall, looking at these indicators, we say, well, overall transfers are easier to expand than services and covert or under the radar retrenchment is easier than overt um, retrenchment. And so um, from the, the cases in the book, what we find in Brazil, especially in Brazil and their um, left and right-wing administrations is that the left continued and the government of Dilma Rousseff continued expanding social policies, even in the context of economic and political crisis without retrenching anything. Uh, whereas the governments of Temer and Bolsonaro did not engage in expansion uh, but engage in an easier form of retrenchment by including millions of Bolsa familia recipients. But in order to make sure that there was not a strong opposition against it, a strong organized opposition, uh, what they did was that they hid it um, under the curtain of it being uh, errors in the inclusion to be in, in the inclusion of these recipients to begin with. Uh, with. And so millions of people have been excluded from the program, alleging that they were errors in the first place. And so that's an easier way to retrench the welfare state, because you're not cutting the eligibility criteria, you're just saying that there were errors. Um, and then, of course, Bolsonaro's signature pension reform last year, that's an example of uh, overt or outright or harder retrenchment that many right-wing governments in um, other Latin American countries haven't been able to do. Great, Sarah. Um, but let's let's unpack this a little bit more. Um, are you saying, for example, uh, with these countries with newly elected right wing presidents, are they, for example, Brazil, 
moving away from the welfare state? What exactly um, are they doing in, in, this, in this area? That's a really good question, Joseph. And um, in this paper that I was mentioning, mentioning with Jenny Privil, it's still a draft. Um, it's currently under review. What we're trying to look at is exactly that. What are the strategies that governments have of both the left and the right to both expand and retrench the welfare state? And um, specifically about Argentina and Brazil, uh, what we saw in the experience of former president Mauricio Macri, right, because the left won again the elections last year in Argentina, the Peronists are back in power. Um, but with the four years of Mauricio Macri, we actually saw not just the retrenchment of the welfare state, but also the expansion. So a president there that combines both strategies. And just to give you examples, um, Macri expanded uh, the welfare state by increasing the minimum contributory pension, uh, by expanding the people who could access uh, the main conditional cash transfer called Asignación Universal por Hijo. Of course, these are all examples of easier forms of expansion, right? Because it's easier to expand transfers than it is to expand services such as health and education. Transfers are easier because once you have a conditional cash transfer in place, including more people doesn't require a lot of investment in institution building. Really, nobody opposes it. Nobody opposes the expansion of non-contributory cash transfers. And finally, it's a very visible policy, right? I mean, the, re the recipients, both in Argentina and Brazil, when they um, receive the funds every month, they do it with an ATM card. And that ATM card has the logo of the government stamped on it. So it's a policy that it's cheap, it's very visible, doesn't require a lot of resources, institutional or financial, and so it's easy to expand the welfare state. Um, and so um, we see Macri doing this, but at the same time also retrenching the welfare state, but doing it in an under-the-radar way. Basically, what Macri did was um, it reduced the increase uh, of income of transfers to the non-contributory pensions and also uh, to the non-contributory conditional cash transfers and the contributory side of them too by adjusting uh, the formula that is used for calculating uh, the increases. The, the formula used to be a majority wages as opposed to uh, inflation and now it is adjusted more towards inflation that increases in wages. And so it doesn't very consequential, but it actually is. It affects 17 million people, and these people are receiving a lot less money than they would have otherwise if we had kept, if Argentina had kept the previous um, formula. In the case of uh, Bolsonaro and Temer, what we see is both governments uh, index, so sort of increase the amount of transfer, an easy form of expansion, but inflation increases at a higher rate. And so we don't consider that to be a case of, of expansion because basically even if nominally the amount increases in reality people are able to buy less goods and services or the same amount of goods and services with that same amount but what as i was saying bolsonaro and temer do is a lot of under the radar uh, sort of reforms um, to retrench the welfare state um, such as excluding um, people from the conditional cash transfer from the disability pension saying that there were cases of fraud or cases in which that these people were richer than they said they were, uh, right? So they are cutting more millions of people from these benefits, but they are doing so 
uh, through um, covered ways, not through open or overt ways. Um, and then, you know, the, the last um, covert, I think, reform that is interesting from, the, from, from Bolsonaro was ending um, one of the main programs uh, of Husef, which was the program uh, Mice Magicos, uh, that used a lot of Cuban um, doctors, right? And so what the government was was to did was uh, to make it more difficult for these Cuban doctors to practice medicine in the country. But again, doing it in a covered way, doing it in an underground way by saying that, you know, um, it, it's something that uh, it's Cuba is to blame for it or adding uh, more barriers for these doctors to practice medicine without completely eliminating uh, the program on, on paper. So can you detect any emerging trends that will have an impact on social policies across the region? Or could you give us some examples where this, this is happening beyond Brazil and, and Argentina? Yeah, no, I mean, that's um, extremely sad and extremely consequential in a moment when we need doctors and a strong public universal healthcare system more than ever, right, in the context of a pandemic. So, uh, these trends are um, very worrisome. At the same time, uh, these trends were already happening even before Bolsonaro, especially not with the mice doctors problem uh, program, but with the um, outsourcing uh, the provision of healthcare uh, to private providers or to um, civil society organizations like churches, for example. And this is something that happens in other countries in Latin America too. I can think of the, the main example is Chile, right? Um, and this is not just something that the right did. Um, uh, the left passed um, a policy, a very important policy called AUGE uh, in 2005 that covers the main illnesses in a timely manner. The problem with, the, and so that's very important um, in terms of the actual access that patients have to the health system. The problem with the program is that uh, the state was not developed enough to receive this increase in the demand of care. And so the solution to end these very long wait lines and wait lists uh, was to outsource the provision of healthcare to private providers. And what in the long term you end up doing is a privatization creep. You're not privatizing the system per se because the system is still public but by outsourcing provision to the, to the private system, you're uh, giving more resources to the private system and making the private system uh, a more important lobbyist. But I don't want to only talk about the negative trends. I think that some of the emerging trends, um, especially from this paper with Jenny Pribble, we actually find um, a hopeful trend, which is that this harder outright retrenchment is actually less likely across all of the cases. Uh, and Bolsonaro and Brazil with the deep context of you know, an extreme right, um, an economic and political crisis uh, is in a way the exception to the rule, right? Um, and so that really suggests that there's a break with Latin America's past. In the past, in the 80s and 90s, hard retrenchment was the role. Think about privatization, liberalization of labor market. Today, that's not the reality anymore. Or that's not the norm or the rule anymore. Um, when we analyze these contemporary administrations, we find that none of the left administrations that we study retrenched in any way 
Um, and in the case of Argentina and Chile, the right actually engages in easier forms of retrenchment, but avoids outright cuts. This doesn't mean that there are no consequences for under the radar forms of retrenchment, the millions of uh, beneficiaries from Bolsa Familia that were cut off before COVID. Um, actually, uh, this is actually very consequential for these families and for the welfare state, um, of course. But the form of retrenchment is different. The program is not eliminated, something that could have been possible in the 80s or 90s. Um, and so I think what this is showing is that this lack of examples or more examples of outright retrenchment, I think is a notable finding. And I think it suggests that the social policy expansion that we saw in the early 2000s in the context of, um, you know, um, increases in, com in commodity boom and the left administrations and social movements pressuring for these reforms actually have shaped citizens' expectations about what the role of the state is and why social protection is so important. Um, and I think all of this is consequential because once you expand transfers and services as it happened throughout the 2000s in Latin America, it's very hard to retrench these benefits and services. Um, these legacies, including the strong social movements going back to uh, the original paper, will make retrenchment in the future very difficult. Well, that, that, that's for sure. Bolsonaro here is, is trying to actually to improve the program, change the name from Bolsa Familia to uh, Renda Cidadã, or what's the other name? Renda Brasil, whatever. They didn't pick the name yet, but the problem is uh, the budget um, doesn't support it. So indeed, it's it's something that's very hard to, to roll back. Sarah, we talked a lot about Brazil. So do you write about Brazil, and I'm sure your fellow events in your home country, Argentina, uh, what's the latest news in Argentina, which have caught your attention and why? Yeah, so um, you're right. I follow closely the news, especially in Argentina. Uh, my whole family lives there. Most of my friends are still in Argentina. I only came to the U.S. Um, 10 years ago. Most of my life I spent it in Argentina. Uh, and so the main news that I've been paying attention to is, of course, um, COVID and the government's response to the pandemic. And um, in April, um, actually soon after uh, the, you know, the, uh, the break of the pandemic, at least in Latin America, I co-authored a short piece with Agustina Giraudi and Jennifer Pribble for America's Quarterly, um, in which we analyze Argentina's initial response to COVID, as well as Brazil's and Mexico's. And you know, what we found there is that Argentina from the beginning offered one of the most rapid and comprehensive responses in the region. The government back in March quickly ordered complete confinement of the population. And to make sure that people were not wandering the streets, um, this confinement was controlled by the police, right? And non-compliance was prosecuted as a criminal offense. Provincial governments, Argentina is a federal country as um, Brazil and the United States. And so provincial governments have a lot of authority and they could decide on exceptions to the national quarantine, quarantine but they had to ask for permission and they had to meet a certain criteria. Overall, throughout the country, schools, public events, interregional public transfers, this was all prohibited at the national level. And at the same time, the Peronist um, president, Alberto Fernandez, also offered a relatively generous social policy response that's very important because you can't ask people to stay at home 
if that means that they're not going to be able to feed their families. And so the government responded very quickly with a monthly transfer of $150 for households that live from uh, informal activities. And therefore, many of them stopped receiving a paycheck um, after COVID when they had to stay at home. And, and the government also increased the main conditional cash transfer program and also increased the amount of the non-contributory pension benefits. And the initial consequence of this fast response was that the amount of infections and deaths were very low initially in Argentina. So the response was very effective. Of course, today, everything has changed. Um, Argentina is among the five countries that have the highest per capita um, uh, people who are infected, infections. Um, and, you know, I've been wondering about what, what went wrong, right, with such a good government response initially. And, you know, you saw people actually that hadn't voted for the government or that were not necessarily Pyrenees who were supporting the government policies. And that lasted for a couple of months. Uh, but today the situation is completely different. Uh, most people or many people are not respecting the quarantine. Of course, they are tired of it. They, they want to go up or they need to go out to feed their families. Um, and so the cases have skyrocketed. Um, it's, it's a very sad story of a country that responded in the way that we hoped and thought it would be enough, and it clearly uh, wasn't. Sarah, we'd like to start a tradition here at EconoPolitics by asking our guests, and I remind everyone that Sarah is our very first guest to recommend um, something unique uh, from the region, uh, a bar, a cafe, restaurant, bookstore, museum, whatever, something special and worthwhile from throughout the region in order eventually to compile a list of recommendations for our members who often travel to the region for research or hopefully for pleasure. Um, so, Sarah, what place would you recommend, where, and why? <laughs> so nice to end on a positive note, Joseph. And so when we I, can travel. Um, <laughs> when we can travel. So I'm, uh, I'm a great fan of ice cream, right? And, um, and I think that um, the cities of Bariloche and Buenos Aires, both in Argentina, have one of the best ice cream places in the entire world, if I may say so. And I have quite experience with ice cream. And so the place is called Rapanui, R-A-P-A-N-U-I. Um, if you go to Buenos Aires or Barilote, you have to try the chocolate ice cream in the ice cream place. I guarantee you won't regret it. Fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. It was amazing to talk to you today. Um, hopefully our listeners will enjoy all the information, the solid research you've done. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you, you, Fabricio and Joseph. See you soon. Take care. In our, next, in our next episode, we'll explore the economics of peace in Colombia five years after the Havana Accords with Angelica Rettberg. So thank you again, Sarah. Hasta pronto, everyone, and see you soon. Bye.